You might remember uh, a few weeks ago when uh, we looked at Mark chapter 1 together and we talked about Jesus coming into Capernaum, which is where he was from. This is the beginning of his public ministry, right? He goes to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. The word gets out about his healing power. People start coming to him. The crowd is overwhelming. They're coming all night long. Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing the sick and, uh, you know, curing blindness and leprosy and, and uh, all of these diseases. And it's this amazing thing. It goes way into the late night and early morning hours until finally everybody kind of gets to sleep and, and then comes a knock at the door and it's nearly sunrise and the next crowd has come. And Jesus comes to this place where they start looking for him and he's not there at the house. Where is he? Well, he's gone away to be alone with his father, as you might remember. He's spending time in prayer. And so they go looking for him. And when they find him, they say to him this great line, Lord, everyone is looking for you. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Do you remember what he said? When he heard that everyone was looking for him, he said this, let's go somewhere else. Let's go to some other towns where I could preach there also because that's what I came for. And in the last six verses of Mark chapter 1, that's exactly what he does. He goes around to some other towns. He preaches in those places. And, and Mark records for us in those last few verses this encounter that he has with a man who has leprosy. And he heals the man of his leprosy. And, and at the end of John 1, Jesus sternly warns the man not to tell anybody what happened, but to go directly to the priest and just tell the priest so that he could be received back into the community. But let me ask you a question. What would you do if you were that guy and you had been on death's door with leprosy and now you had been made clean? Do you think you would have kept your mouth shut about it? Some of you can't keep your mouth shut about a sale at Kohl's. This guy's whole life got transformed and he doesn't keep his mouth shut no matter how sternly he was warned. And it, and it says that he goes out and tells everybody. And so there's all this buzz about Jesus. And as we get to Mark chapter 2, which is where I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning. As we get to Mark chapter 2, New Testament, second book, Matthew, then Mark. Go to Mark chapter 2, and as we pick it up in Mark chapter 2, he's coming back to Capernaum. He's just come back. This is his hometown. This is where he's from. And he's come back home, and we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So again, the crowds have just crushed into this place. And there's a crowd all around the house. You can't even get near the door. And Jesus is teaching them from the word of God. Verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get uh, to him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, 
said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And when he got up, and immediately, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. You think? <laughs> this is such a cool picture of Jesus's life. I absolutely love this story. There are so many amazing things about this story. You get a glimpse of Jesus' compassionate healing power. He speaks a word and this man who has been crippled is now completely whole. And then there's also the thing that really kind of thrills my heart tremendously about this story. And it's the story of those friends who brought their friend to Jesus. They knew that Jesus was there. They knew that Jesus had the power to change their friend's life. And so they carried him. We don't know how far they carried him. But whatever distance, they carried their friend. And when they get there, you can't even get near the guy. The house is packed. There's a crowd around the house. You can't even see the door. And so apparently they go around the back and climb up the side of the house and carry this guy up onto the roof, and they begin to destroy the roof of the house. They dig a hole, and they lower him down through the roof and drop him in Jesus' lap, so to speak. And every time I read about these guys, I am blown away and convicted at the fact that, you know what, I, I don't know that I go to that kind of distance to help my friends meet Jesus. And it reminds me how valuable relationship with Jesus is and how necessary it is. I want to be a person who digs holes in roofs in order to get my friends to Jesus. But that's not the part of the story I want to focus on today either. The part that I think is the most important part of the story is actually the part that you might have missed as we read it. You might have missed the whole point. I know that many of us do. I want you to go back and look with me in verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, this freaks out the scribes. They, they drop him down thinking he's going to heal him of his disease. And instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes, these religious leaders, they don't know what to do with this. To them, it is blasphemy. So they start freaking out. And Jesus confronts them about this. And look at verse 10. He says, but I did this so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
Listen, Jesus came to forgive sins. That's why he came. He had already become known as a great healer by this point. That's why the crowds were there. He was already known as a great teacher. They were sitting and listening to his every word. He was already known as one who could cast out demons and had power over the devil. But he did not come primarily to do those things. Remember what we learned a couple of weeks ago. We we're looking at the focus of Jesus' life. And we looked at Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus says this about himself. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let me ask you a question. In what sense are people lost? What's Jesus talking about? What is this lostness that Jesus came to save people from? Well, the book of Romans goes a long way to answer that question. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it tells us, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, 6, it tells us that because of our sin, apart from Jesus, we are literally slaves to sin. In Romans 6, 23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin is a huge, huge problem, and Jesus is the only solution. Now, in Ephesians, Paul takes it even further. I want to invite you to open to the book of Ephesians. So just flip back in your Bibles. Uh, after you find the book of Galatians, the next book is Ephesians and before Philippians. So it's between Galatians and Philippians. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in the first verse. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, not sick, not hindered, dead. Sin makes us spiritually dead. Verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, those might be my two favorite words in scripture. But God, but God, you were a mess, but God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. You were unable to save yourself, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow. That is such an unbelievable picture of what our life is like if it's not for God, but God. But God sets us free from our sin. But God pays the price to ransom us. But God gives us life where there was only death. But God intervenes with forgiveness of our sins. His whole mission, the whole reason that Jesus came to earth was forgiveness 
and reconciliation. He saw our bondage to sin. And he had to do something about it. Sin and guilt make a terrible burden to carry. And too many people are stumbling around under the weight of their guilt, unable to carry that burden. We all know what it is to be guilty. We all know what it is to need to be forgiven. One of the terrible things about guilt is the way it can hold us hostage. There's an old preacher story that I like. It's about these two kids, uh, Johnny and Susie, brother and sister. And they go to grandma's house for a few weeks during the summer every year. And grandma lives out in the country and she's got animals and she's got land. And they just love playing at grandma's house. And they spend a couple weeks there. And... Johnny loves to just go outside and get dirty and roll around and do boy things outside. And he's got a slingshot. And so he just finds rocks and aims them at the side of the barn. Or he finds rocks and aims them at a tin can. Or he aims them at a tree. And after a few days of this, he's getting pretty good. And he says, I wonder if I could hit a moving target. Well, his grandmother has a pet duck. And he sees the duck go walking by. And he's a great distance away. He knows he can't hit it. But he goes ahead and takes aim and fires. And by some terrible magic, the rock hits the duck right in the side of the head. And the duck drops. Now I know, animal lovers, this is a sad story. Bear with me. He runs to the duck and he sees that it's dead. And suddenly he feels guilty and he doesn't know what to do. So he picks up the duck, goes behind the tree and buries the duck. And he thinks, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to tell anybody. Grandma's just going to wonder what happened to her duck. But I wouldn't know, so I won't say anything. And that's when his sister Susie comes around the corner. She says, I saw what you did to Grandma's duck. And he says, please, 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 don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. Like no other kid ever said that to his sister, right? Please don't tell on me. Please don't tell on me. What will you give me? He reaches in his pocket and he has a few coins and he gives her the coins. She says, I want you to do my chores too. Okay, I'll do your chores. The next day she says, hey, I want you to give me your dessert. If you don't give me your dessert, I'm going to tell grandma what you did. And this goes on for two or three days. He's doing her chores. He's giving her his dessert until finally he can't take it any longer. And he goes to grandma and he says, I'm so sorry, but I have to tell you, I killed your duck. And grandma puts her hand on his shoulder and says, you know, when you did that, I was standing at the kitchen window and I saw the whole thing happen. I already forgave you. I was just waiting to see how long you were going to let Susie hold you hostage. Guys, some of us are just like Johnny. We're burdened by our sin. We feel terrible about it, but we're not dealing with it. And we're letting ourselves be held hostage and it's stealing the blessings of our lives. We're letting guilt hold us hostage. And like the people of Capernaum, too many of us are accustomed to coming to Jesus only for certain things. 
I mean, when we have something that we really need or something really flashy or something really, we need healing. Okay, we'll come to Jesus for that. We need uh, answers to prayer, something that's beyond our power. We come to Jesus for that. Uh, we need provisions. We need help when we're in trouble. Okay, we come to Jesus for that. We're impressed with the amazing things he can do. But some of us, I'm afraid, are missing the point. Jesus is not a magician. Jesus is not an entertainer. Jesus is not a doctor. Those are not the reasons that he came. First and foremost, Jesus Christ is a savior. He came to bring forgiveness. He came to set us free from the bondage of sin and guilt. He came to forgive our sins. After three years of public ministry, after all the sermons that he preached and all those people that he healed, his ministry came to a crescendo on a hill called Calvary where he was beaten and spat upon. He had been whipped and scourged. He had been forced to carry his own cross up the side of the hill. And now... Naked and bleeding, he had been nailed to that cross and was suffering as the crowds around him sneered and mocked and spat upon him. And what did he do? He prayed. Oh, you mean he prayed for himself? Under, no, he didn't pray for himself. He prayed for them. He prayed for the people who were doing this to him. He prayed for the people who were mocking him, who were sneering, who were spitting, who had whipped him and beaten him, who had nailed him to this tree. He prayed for them. I want you to turn to the book of Luke. You know where Mark is. Luke is right after Mark. Go to uh, Luke chapter 23, toward the back of the book of Luke. And I want you to join me in verse 33 of Luke 23 as we meet Jesus on Calvary's hill hanging on the cross. Here's what it says, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself. Come on, Jesus, you say you're so powerful, save yourself. Come on, Jesus, you say you come from heaven, save yourself. You save so many others, come on, Jesus, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. But he didn't come to save himself. He came to save them. He came to save us. Jesus came 
to save you. And he showed his greatest power, not by coming off the cross, but by staying on it. Because that was the way he could offer forgiveness to you and me. You see, Jesus' greatest gift is not healing. The greatest thing he offers us is not financial provision or the easy life somehow. The greatest gift that Jesus came to bring us is forgiveness of sins with its accompanying freedom from guilt. His greatest gift to us is his unmerited favor. Remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. You were once a slave to your sin. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to die for you so that you might receive forgiveness of sins. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you ever really accepted that incredible gift of God's forgiveness? You see, the Bible tells us very, very clearly that none of us is exempt. Every one of us is guilty before a holy God. Now you might say, I'm pretty good. I'm better than the guy next door. I'm, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That may be true. But God's standard is holiness. It's beyond what any of us can reach. And the only way for us to get there, the Bible says, is to accept the gift that the God who so loved the world sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That everlasting life comes with the forgiveness of sins. And it does not come apart from that forgiveness. And so I want to ask you today, wherever you may, may be, whenever you may be listening to this, don't you think it's time that you bow the knee before the God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross that your sins and mine might be forgiven? He doesn't ask you to jump through a bunch of hoops he doesn't tell you that if you clean your life up, he'll accept you. What he says is, please accept his gift. And in accepting that gift, you submit your life to him as Lord and Savior. And he cleans your life up from there. You may need to accept that gift today. Perhaps... You've already accepted that gift. You feel secure in your relationship with God, but you have to admit that you have still, in spite of that forgiveness, been living under the weight of your guilt. You've still been held hostage to your sin. Isn't it time you took Jesus at his word and accepted his forgiveness? I'm talking to Christians now. Those of you who are used to coming to church, reading your Bible and praying and all that kind of stuff. But you know in your heart that there is guilt that just plagues you because you don't give it to God. 
You want to be like Johnny and don't tell anyone your secret. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're walking around as a Christian with the burden of sin and guilt on your back, you've bought into a lie. Isn't it time to lift your hands and surrender to the one who says, I know everything about you. I know everything that's in your heart, the things no one else knows. I know the secrets that go on in your life when no one's looking. I know your attitudes and your words. And I certainly know your sinful deeds and I love you anyway. And so I've come to forgive. That is what our gospel is about. Maybe today, before we share in the Lord's Supper, maybe you need a moment to talk with God about your sin, about your guilt. Maybe you need to accept Jesus and his gift of forgiveness for the first time into your life to admit that you're a sinner to him to ask him to cleanse you and make you new and to give you new life and to invite him to be Lord of your life. Or maybe as a Christian, you need to just lift your hands again afresh and surrender to Jesus and say, I'm here for you. It's about that surrender. It's about that forgiveness. And so I want to give you a few moments. You need to be preparing. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper in just a minute. And I want to give you a few moments, prepare your heart. Maybe you need a moment for prayer. Or maybe you need to prepare to serve communion to your family. Get some bread, get some juice, because this is the time. Wherever your heart is, I encourage you, give it all to Jesus. Surrender. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you that your goodness and your grace are enough we thank you that we can live in this newness of life, the forgiveness of our sins. And we pray now, Father, that you will minister to each one of us right where we are, and that we would meet you in this time of worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.